We are continuing the study in the book of Habakkuk. Today we're going to start a section that is called the five woes. Right, what, what is a woe? We're going to uh, get to that when we define our terms. And then uh, we're going to see how God knows exactly what the Babylonians are up to. He knows their uh, intricate and uh, deceitful ways. And God is going to pronounce judgment on that. So if you are able, let's please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be looking at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which will cover the first two woes. Starting in verse 6, the inerrant word of God reads, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be saved from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, for it is relevant for a time such as this that we're, we're living on today. Lord, I pray that as we examine your word this morning, that you would speak to each one of us, that you would make us see how the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. And Lord, let us not be so quick to turn to our neighbor and say how bad they are, but let us look to the inside of us, for it is not what comes from the outside that defiles us, but as the Lord Jesus said, it is what comes out of our mouth, what comes out of our heart that defiles us. Lord, I pray that you may speak to us through your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I titled today the sermon, The Storing Up of Judgment. The Storing Up of Judgment. I came across a brief story this week uh, from a ministry called the Word of Life Fellowship. And it tells a story about some decades ago, probably in, in the 70s or perhaps even the 80s, in which a, a farmer who was not only an unbeliever, uh, meaning not a Christian, but very anti-Christian in his uh, in his beliefs, wrote a letter to the Christian of the local paper, knowing that the, the editor of the newspaper was a Christian because he would publish, you know, editors, editorials there. And he knew that the guy was a Christian. So this farmer wrote to him, knowing that if he's a Christian and he's uh, true to his job, he will give him a voice to, to express his opinion in such letters to the editor. And it read like this, it says, In defiance of your God, I plowed my fields this year on Sunday. 
I dissed and fertilized them on Sunday. I planted them on Sunday. I cultivated them on Sunday. And I reaped them on Sunday. This October, I had the biggest crop I have ever had. How do you explain that? So the editor published that in the newspaper. And he had a one-line response to that. And he said, I quote, God does not always settle his accounts in October. Think about that. What is the principle here? We tend to think that if, if we don't see God acting right now, whether it is to bring judgment on evil or whether it is I'm getting away with what I'm doing and God is turning a blind eye to my disobedience, we tend to think that if God doesn't come down on us and judges us right there and there, that he must be idle. He must be too busy. I'm flying under, I'm flying under the radar, right? But my friends, are we living in such defiance to God today? Do we neglect the things of God? Are we living a relatively carefree life or perhaps even a life of luxury and comfort, which compared to the rest of the world, we are? While having one foot in the church and one foot in the world, my brothers and sisters, know this. It may all look good right now, but remember, God does not set his accounts in October. The day of reckoning is coming in which we will see the consequence of our sins, of our disobedience, of our passivity, of our lack of devotion and discipline in the things of the Lord. That day is coming, my friends, in which God will settle accounts with us, with you. So why do we bring this up right off the bat? Well, the book of Habakkuk is a book that speaks of things getting worse before things getting better. It is the book of the justice and righteousness of God's holy judgment. Before God brings restoration to his people, he first deals with their disobedience. God in his righteousness did not turn a blind eye to the corruption being lived out by his people as Habakkuk thought that God was. There would be consequence to the sin of God's people. And we're reminded of that even in the New Testament. Galatians 6-7 which reads, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So much application for that today. Not only for the example of the, the anecdote I read Right, literally reaping a good harvest, but it's not over yet. That man in defiance to God will reap destruction in the end. So then as we come here to the book of Habakkuk, to the first two woes, we have seen that Habakkuk has pleaded with God in lament, asking him, why, Lord, are you not doing anything? God has responded and in essence tells Habakkuk that not only is he well aware of the wickedness that is going on, but that he's doing a work in the midst of that wickedness. He will use the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, a more sinful people, to punish Israel for their disobedience. And to show Habakkuk that he knows exactly who these people are, God is going to pronounce five woes on the Chaldeans 
And this will let Habakkuk know that, wow, God, not only is he aware, he knows even better than I do how wicked the Chaldeans are. So let's define our terms. What is a woe? When the Bible says, woe to thee, Jesus used this language when speaking to the religious hypocrites. Woe, right? Woe to the Pharisees. Here, the Hebrew word woe is hoi. And it's difficult to have an exact translation in our English modern language. But it is described as a statement of a, a pronouncement of woe. And it is to be understood as a divine threat of judgment. In other words, God is saying, judgment is coming. Woe to thee. That is a practical way in which we can understand it. A divine threat, a divine warning. So if God spoke to you personally and said, hey there, I'm watching you. Better watch it, knock it off, repent, or my judgment is coming. If God personally spoke to you and told you that, would that shake you up with that kind of, whoa, I thought I was getting away with what I'm doing, but it seems that God is actually watching me. Well, my friends, God has done that. He has spoken to you personally, in His Word, by His Spirit, by His Son. And He has warned all of us of the judgment to come. As the words of John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The first word that came out of John the Baptist, the last of the prophets in the Old Testament context, his first word in his ministry was, repent. We are told in the gospel accounts that Jesus came not to make people's lives better, although he did. Not to give people what they needed right there and there, although he did in his mercy. But it says that he came to preach the good news. And in that, we should be reminded that God has spoken to us. That God has given us woes, divine announcement of his judgment to come. God has spoken to us. With a warning of judgment that should turn us to Christ. To, as in Noah's Ark day, into that safe haven that will deliver us from judgment. Ultimately, we are pointed to Jesus so that we are withdrawn from the world and the sinfulness therein and trust in Christ as our Savior. That is the point of the divine threats from God's holy word to us personally. With all that said, as a means of an introduction, we will now look at the first two of the five woes to the Chaldeans which are declarations of judgment that is coming to them in due time. So let us begin. Woe 1 of 5. It talks about building up of unrighteous gain. Right? Storing up the goodies. There's a, a bumper sticker or even a meme that I've seen often of, of folks that boast how much, how much they have says, the one with the most toys wins. The one who dies with the most toys wins. And I'm like, well, yeah, but he's still going to die. 
and more than likely go to hell if that's the worldview that you have. So what, what good does all those uh, goodies make? The building up of unrighteous gain. Habakkuk 2 verse 6 reads, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. So here when this verse says, Shall not all these, what is that referring to? Who? Who is it talking about? Let us remember that as Brother Eric preached last week, he talked about that the righteous shall live by faith. So we are being introduced to this passage with the understanding that at some point the righteous will rise up against their oppressor. And the righteous, who are God's people, will be able to taunt their oppressor and the tables are going to turn. We're being introduced to this idea here. The righteous will rise against the evil ones. And it says that they will taunt against the unrighteous. What is that word taunt? Actually, the, the, uh, providentially, the psalm we read today talked about that. About taunting, about being, being uh, you know, shameful, scorn. And that word taunt, it is a common term for a proverb, but in a de derogatory proverbial chant against an object of scorn. Think of maybe young kids, na 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 na, right? In that type of concept, but being done to someone who's about to be judged, and rightly so, right? Taunting them, them becoming a mockery, them being put to shame because of their unrighteousness. So this is the introduction into those woes that the tables are about to turn when judgment comes. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 14 verse 4 reminds us of that concept, specifically in the judgment that is coming to the Babylonians. It says, You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. See, a sort of a chant of scorn, a chant of like, you're getting what's coming to you. So in essence, God, in essence, God is telling the wicked, I know what you're up to, and there's a divinely preordained time when your shenanigans is going to stop. The tables will turn. So then the first woe reads like this. It says, to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself with pledges. So the Chaldeans, by their evil nature, had been and would keep taking what is not their own, plundering other nations. And that is sinful. That is stealing. That is killing because they need to, to go into war in order to, to take over um, property and plunder land that is not their own. Ezekiel 22 verse 13 reads as follows. Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made and at the blood that has been in your midst. So God disapproves of this type of 
evil conquest of weaker nations. Now, mind you, God will use that evil to judge his own people. He will. And yet God in his holy, perfect, holy character is not responsible for that. He's not forcing anyone to do anything. The wicked Babylonians are acting upon their own wicked impulses. Let us remember that. So God is making it known to Habakkuk that he knows the Babylonians and that he does not approve of their wickedness as, as the Babylonians are building up their riches. And God says, I will strike them. My judgment will come to them. It also says that the wicked abuse pledges. The unrighteous gain of, of goods is easier for us to understand, but what does that mean? That they are stacking up pledges. Well, pledges, even, even in those days, were a sort of collateral, right? You take a, a loan or you take a, a land or, or uh, some, someone that has more wealth than you is providing you with a good, then you provide a sort of collateral so that if in the due time of that contract you don't come through, then the collateral will be taken. And in many cases, because people were so poor, the collateral will be themselves. Like, I'll have to become your slave. And what would the Chaldeans do? The Chaldeans would have no regard for the terms of those contracts or agreements, and they would end those periods of payment early, and hence racking up all those pledges, whether it was property or, again, even ownership of the people. And the Chaldeans were abusing this system, which should have been in place in order to help people. Now they were enslaving people. This could lead to the literal enslavement of a whole nation, as it often did. And who are you going to go appeal to? They are the authority, right? That's what happens in a corrupt society. Issue reminds us that we are not too far off from having such a corrupt society. Perhaps not yet in the US, but definitely in countries, at the very least, to the south of us, which I've lived in and I've seen. What do I mean by that? Well, when somebody transgresses against you, and many times it could be the state that is transgressing against you, or an institution is transgressing against you. Who do you go and tell? Who can you appeal to? Well, you would say, well, I can go and, and make a case before a judge or, or I can sue. But what happens when those in power are in agreement with those that are oppressing? You're screwed, right? Let's bring that application a little bit closer to a first world civilized country. What is happening in Australia? What is happening in Canada? And if we can see the right end of the wall, where is the US going towards? We are essentially being separated from the righteous from the unrighteous. If you disagree with the state, you are being segregated. And what is happening as these systems are being put in place 
so that eventually who you're going to appeal to. If you say, I believe that mandates are being issued that are unjust, that are unconstitutional to the church, to my family, to the school that I have my children in. My friends, the days are going to be gone when you will be able to make an appeal through the court system, through the legal system, and actually get a righteous verdict or a righteous appeal. Why? Because as all these judges of our modern age, as the old generation are retiring or dying, who are they being replaced with? They're being replaced with people that go to these elite universities in which they basically learn cultural Marxism and they implement that in what they practice in their law profession. So that when you go and you appeal to them, they're basically going to be telling you, and, and in some instances already happened, oh, what do you mean you don't want to comply with this? Of course you're wrong. So the system will be against the righteous. It's happening now. So with that, as I mean, we've seen some real life examples of a brother of ours that lives in one of these countries, right? We're just in the midst of the hysteria. They're literally coming down with an iron fist. So where are we to say, is God in control? Why is God not doing something? We then find our place similar to Habakkuk. You bet God is doing something. He is. Our responsibility is to stand for righteousness, not to be passive Christians and to align with what the world wants us to do. Remember, Paul appealed to Caesar. Paul didn't say, well, you know, that's what they're telling me I should do and I'm going to be condemned. No, Paul appealed to Caesar. We are to be involved and yet live by faith, knowing that God has a purpose, God is sovereign. We ought to live by faith in that God is doing the work. Live by faith in that God might be bringing judgment to this very nation and to the world for that matter before he brings restoration. We like to look at how bad that country or this country or even our own nation is. And we should be thankful to live here because we're still a beacon of light. But nevertheless, my friends, we live in a wicked nation. Let us read Isaiah 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isn't that true today? I mean, sometimes I look at some of the headlines of current events and I think this has to be satire. And what do you know? It's not the Babylon Bee. It's an actual news site. Right? Now, let's bring this a little bit more personally. The job of the Christian, the mentality of the Christian, is not first to look at, oh, look at those evildoers. Woe is me, I'm a victim. That is not the right mentality of a Christian. The biblical worldview starts first and foremost with, what am I doing? 
Am I right before God? So that then we can stand righteously before true injustice. So in this context, do we ever take advantage of others due to the fact that we are better off than them? Do we ever take advantage of pledges? Are we advancing unrighteous gain in our personal lives at the expense of others? If we are, the day of reckoning will come. Let us take a look at the rest of that first woe in verses 7 to 8. It says, Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. So again, the, the key here is that there will come a time when the bully, the oppressor, the one in unrighteous power will get what's coming to him. And this is even understood in secular terms. Again, as I was studying this week, I came across an anecdote as uh, told as a true story told by a minister by the name of Sean Miller. The anecdote goes something like this. He says that a late summer evening in Broken, uh, Broken Bow, Nebraska, a tired truck driver pulled in into a, a truck stop. He ordered his food, waitress brought him his food. As he was about to start eating, three bikers entered the diner and they wanted to make it known that that's their place, they rule there. So you kind of see that scene in your mind. As the bikers approached the, the bar where the, the guy was eating, one of them takes a bite of his burger, the other one grabs his fries and the other one drinks his coffee and kind of push him to the side so that he scoots to the next chair. What would you have done? Right, I know what, I know my response had been. Lord help me, right? But to our surprise, that man remained calm. He got up, he looked out the window, without saying a word, left his money on the desk, and walked out. And the waitress, kind of not knowing what was going on and maybe afraid that things could escalate, she kind of went and saw him leave, went to the door. And about a minute later, she came back and the bikers sitting down ready to order their food. They said, well, that guy's not much of a man, is he? To which the waitress replied, I'm not sure about that, but I know he's not a good truck driver because he just ran over three motorcycles as he got out of the parking lot. <laughs> right? So even in secular terms, we can understand this concept of the bully is going to get what's coming to him. And in that, we kind of feel the relief of like, yeah, that's right. 
My friend, if we understand this principle that the world often refers to as karma, but they have real, no real explanation other than the law of attraction or, you know, if you think positive thoughts, things will come, that's a bunch of garbage. We have a biblical explanation for that, and it's called you reap what you sow. That applies to us. Unrighteous gain, oppression, corruption will not go on forever. God has made a promise that justice will be carried out. And it's not karma. It's divine justice. It'll either happen in this lifetime or when we meet our creator. But no one is going to get away with sin. No one's going to get away with wickedness. Let us take a look at the second woe. Woe 2 of 5, which is the second woe we're covering today. In the, in the next sermons, we'll cover the rest. This is unrighteous protection. Speaks of the person that is secured within his riches, within his property. Right? But the question is, at the expense of what? Or at the expense of who? Habakkuk 2.9 reads, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So this second divine pronouncement of judgment comes as a result of the Chaldeans building an unrighteousness safe space. Now, is there anything wrong with seeking to live in peace in a calm neighborhood? There's nothing wrong with that. We should aspire to, uh, to live peacefully and, and living, uh, give our family uh, protection, absolutely. But that's not the issue here. The issue here is, what if someone's comfortable and safe living is at the expense of others suffering? That's the real question. And we need to realize that in the end, if we do aspire to live comfortably and safely, although it has its merits, at the end of the day, it's only false assurance that you are living in safety. False assurance. As we naturally seek to live our, our daily life in safety, safe neighborhood, maybe financial security, good health, we seek to avoid pain, inconvenience, discomfort. This is an overall pattern that we instinctively want to follow. But if we are honest, many times we seek this in selfishness, in selfish gain, in order to live a carefree, comfortable life. But are we really safe? My friends, if you are not in the Lord, you are not safe. If you are not confirmed in your mind and heart as a new creation of God, you are not safe. It's a matter of time before you are stricken down and go to hell. You are not safe if you are not in Christ. Only then, when you are in Christ, will you be safe from what you ultimately fear most. Death. Why is it that you want health? Why is it that you want a healthy lifestyle? Why is it that you want to live in a nice neighborhood? Think about it. Ultimately, in engineering, we call it a five-why analysis which is the concept of 
asking why and then breaking that down and then asking why and breaking that down. If you do a five why analysis on why we seek comfort and pleasure and safety, it's ultimately because we are afraid of death. And if we are not in Christ, doesn't matter in what safe neighborhood you live, you are not safe. Neither from your neighborhood, nor from uh, disease, or what have you. Because the moment that you are summoned into the court law of the divine holy God, you're in trouble. And hence, you are not safe. So this second rebuke then, the second woe, condemns selfish, abusive behavior that provides safety at the expense of the suffering of others, or at the expense of others lacking what you could have instead given. Habakkuk 2, verses 10 and 11, read as follows. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So the end of that unrighteous, superficial, secure lifestyle will be a shameful end. That's what the scripture's telling us. Will be a shameful end. It will catch up. And the oppressor, the selfish, me, 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 I want, I want to accumulate. That selfish person will be exposed. Verse 11 poetically describes that the very foundations of that lifestyle, the very security gates of that nice neighborhood, the nice home, the nice lifestyle you're living, that superficial safety will condemn you. It is crying out. That's the poetic language that is being used there. Jeremiah 22, 13 similarly speaks of the same with a similar woe. It says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out widows for it, Paneling it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermiline. So I will live in luxury at the expense of those that even built my house. But I really don't care about them. They could go and fend for themselves as far as I'm taking care of. So the unrepentant heart will manifest itself in unrighteous, secure, comfortable living. And by doing so, it stores up judgment, which someday that day of reckoning will come. Hence, the message of, of the sermon, right? The title of the sermon, the storing up of judgment. It may seem that you're going unnoticed, living selfishly, insecurity in building up you know stacking up your chips so to speak but all you're doing as those riches and comforts are being stored up you're storing up judgment for yourself Romans 2 5 reads as follows but because of your heart and in impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, there's another way in which this can be applied to us very vividly. We might say, you know, I don't really live in luxury. I'm certainly not rich. So maybe that's really not for me. My friends, wrong. Let's go to 1 John 3.17. It reads as follows. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, <clears throat> yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See that? Now he's sitting real close to home. Because we're too quick to worry about, yeah, I know the government and mandates and this and that. No, no, no. What about you? Where are you at? What about me? And by the way, my brothers and sisters, as I'm preaching here, greater judgment will come on me if I'm just putting on a show, right? So please know that this is a rebuke for me as well. So the question here is, do you have the world's goods? If so, do you use those to keep yourself safe, to keep yourself comfortable? A test of your spiritual health is this. How generous are you? Not your neighbor, not the one that you know makes more than, no. How generous are you? If your first impulse is to make an excuse of why you don't give, to the church or otherwise, but you should give to the church. If your first answer is to justify why you don't, that's a red flag of your spiritual health. Two things Jesus talked about the most, money and hell. Why? Because where we allocate our resources, it's a great indicator of where you are at spiritually. Of how well you know God, of how thankful you are to God. Remember what it says? Him who has been forgiven much, loves much. Him who has been forgiven little, loves little. And one of the ways in which that is expressed is in your generosity. Are you generous? Now, don't get me wrong, God doesn't need your giving. Yet, a person's generosity or lack thereof is a true indicator, my friends. True indicator. Let me not sugarcoat that. It's a true indicator of your spiritual maturity and of genuine faith. We went through the book of James, right? It talks plenty about that. So let us take heed of that, my brothers and sisters. If this perhaps is an area that we should repent of before the day of reckoning is coming where your possessions or the accumulation of your of your wealth or security will be of no avail because you have built your house on the sand and not in the rock so with that what can we say three quick points here in closing first my friends all of us have a divine court date. What do I mean? If you've ever been summoned to court, or if you've ever been sued, I know at least one of the brothers here <laughs> gets sued often, right? You get a paper, you get served, appear on such and such day, 
My friends, in the, divine, in the divine calendar of God, you have a court date already. We may remember some of the most famous cases of our generation. The people of the state of California versus O.J. Simpson. Remember that? Or maybe even uh, one of more magnitude, the United States of America versus Timothy McVeigh. The Oklahoma City bombing. Let us remember, my friends, it is appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, right? So with that, when we think, wow, the, the United States of America against Timothy, that must, that's a lot of people against Timothy, right? My friends, God Almighty versus, insert your name there, that's the court case that's already in the books. You think you have a chance? There will be a verdict. And if you are not in Christ, it will not be in your favor. Secondly, the divine pronouncement of judgment in Habakkuk is an archetype. He gives us a principle that we can apply to our current situation. Instead of being quick to judge others or to tell God why he's not judging others. Let us remember that the book of Habakkuk reminds us that God begins judgment with Israel, with his own people. Who are God's people today? Who is the true Israel? We are. The church. So do we think that God will spare judgment in his people today? No, my friends, no. We, the church, have a lot to repent from. From being idle, from being passive, maybe from being silent. God's judgment begins with his household. So that's a time for us as a church and individually to seek repentance. Don't play games with God. Don't have a foot in the church and a foot in the world before God settles accounts with you. Let us repent. And now after God deals with discipline in his people, believe me, judgment will come to those outside. It will come. Just like God judged his people and then the Chaldeans were judged. Same thing here. Those that oppose God's people will not go unpunished. All the evildoers, all those that denounce God, that pretty much deny reality, all the wicked rulers drunk with power, abusing legislative power, putting all this kind of hysterical and nonsense mandates, which by the way, they don't even obey, right? Many of these people that come up with these mandates, they don't even obey them. My friends, those that are enemies of the church will be judged take that to the bank psalm 917 says the following the kjv version kind of has a a, a a more direct tone it says the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget god don't we see the archetype here nations that forget god 
my brothers, by and large, the U.S. has forgotten God. We are not a Christian nation. Don't be deceived. And then the third point here would be, my friends, it's not all bad news. It's not all bad news, but we cannot understand the good news until we realize how bad it is. There is hope. In Habakkuk, we learned that God has ways that are better than our ways to address evil. And in the midst of the chaos, Habakkuk has understood that the righteous will live by faith. And he no longer tries to fully understand God or to change God's mind. But rather, in it, we see that we are invited to live by faith, by faith in Christ, by faith not in that coming to God or being a believer will make our lives better and problems go away, but rather that if we come to God, we give Him our burdens, He'll in return give us purpose, hope, joy, peace, love, forgiveness. Regardless of circumstance. So that by confessing our sins to God, asking Christ to forgive us, falling upon His mercy, by faith we will have the righteousness of Christ. So that when that day of judgment comes, when your core date with God comes, you will have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who would have paid your fine in full. It is finished. So may we have this heart of trusting in Christ, knowing that whatever wickedness is going on, God has a purpose, yet we must stand strong. We must speak out. We must not be passive. And yet have faith knowing that God is doing a work. May we be convicted of that this morning so that we may repent in our own personal lives and in our own local church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. For your word is indeed true. For your word is like a double-sided edged sword, Lord, that cuts through our heart, through the bone and to the, uh, through the marrow. Pray that uh, this word this morning would bring us conviction, Lord, to, to love you, Lord, to, to not play games with you, Lord. And to really look to a place of repentance, Lord that can only come by us falling upon your mercy. Eyes is now in Jesus' name.